Hey, my name is Petra Cruz, and I'm obsessed with all things birth, but especially VBAC. I am a birth doula and mom who had a vaginal birth after three cesareans. In this podcast, we dive deep into the inspirational world of vaginal birth after cesarean. In each episode, you'll hear inspiring VBAC stories, practical tips from professionals who champion the VBAC cause, as well as my personal journey and how it might help you on yours. From mindset shifts to evidence-based practices, you'll leave each episode feeling inspired and informed. Get ready to soak in the wisdom, embrace the strength within, and join this incredible VBAC community. This is the VBAC Junkie Podcast. All right, today I have an amazing story for you. I got to chat with Ashley, who believes that women are born with strength, wisdom, and courage to birth and be the mothers they want to be. She works very intimately with pregnant women who plan to have a vaginal birth after cesarean by working through fear and mindset challenges while providing emotional support so that they feel heard, seen, and validated while taking the steps to birth their baby on their terms, in their way. Ashley is a VBAC home birth mentor and guide, podcaster, speaker, and she birthed her third baby at home unassisted after two surgical births with a special scar. You're going to hear about the challenges that she faced and some tips that she has for you to help you get through those challenges if you're facing them yourself. All right, here we go. Let's dive in. Thanks so much for having me and for allowing me to share my stories with you as well. I am based in Australia, in case you can't pick up the accent. I live on the Gold Coast and I had my first baby. It was, she's nine now, so it was back in 2014. And I'm a bit of a forward planner, a type A personality. I like to have all my ducks in a row. I love to be in control and all that sort of thing. So I wanted to make sure everything was set up before I fell pregnant, got all my blood tests done. The only thing they said to me was, you know, we'll get your iron up a little bit. And because you're bigger, you may have troubles falling pregnant. And so I understood that. I also had a lot of people around me who had had miscarriages. So there was a bit of anxiety and concern having had that message. Um, but I was really lucky I fell pregnant first time and that baby was my firstborn now. I was definitely somebody who was used to listening to authority and maybe a little bit scared of authority. And I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes early because for bigger people, they like to do testing earlier around about 12 weeks. The interesting thing was where I was working, which is where I had the test in Brisbane, I didn't have gestational diabetes, but at the hospital that I was birthing at, they were falling under the new regulations and I did have gestational diabetes. So the way that they announced that was, so because you've got gestational diabetes and I was like, no, I don't. I've been told I don't have it. It was shocking. It was shameful because the extra stigma of being plus size was, it was very shameful for me. I basically punish myself throughout that pregnancy. When I went to the gestational diabetes meetings, I was like the only big person in there. So it was really interesting to see that there, there wasn't really many big people in that room, even though we're at higher risk of, you know, having these issues. Uh, I personally now, after my experience, I don't technically believe in gestational diabetes. I think that they've lowered the numbers too low because I've had positive experiences with my and I, I can't you can't see me because you're not on went on a video but I keep doing air quotes gestational diabetes because so many women get trapped in the hospital system from this gestational diabetes and I researched it like crazy and all the things that they're worried about big baby big swollen stomach shoulder dysocia all of these things potentially a placenta having issues Babies coming out with low sugar issues, I didn't have any of those, but I had the fear of all of those things. Being a first-time mum, I was anxiety was through the roof, so I was doing everything to the letter. I felt really lucky that I had obstetricians who were publicly funded and I didn't have to see midwives. I thought, I'm getting the gold standard care here because, and I don't have to pay for it because I'm public. What I didn't realise, but I, I knew inside, was I was receiving cold clinical it didn't feel personal nobody was excited nobody was invested in me or my journey and I felt um, I mean the appointments were always an hour behind so I'd have to leave work and I'd be sitting there for an hour and I'd see some random person and they it didn't feel like they wanted to be there they were just doing 
that was a training hospital. So that has got the junior doctors in just kind of doing the thing. And when I asked them about birth, it was always, oh, well, you know, when we get closer, we'll talk about it. But there was never any conversation about birth. There was never any information provided. And I was always told that we're going to induce you. You're going to be induced. And I thought, that's awesome. I'm going to meet my baby two weeks early. I'm so excited. One of the ladies that I met in the GD room, she said, I had my baby in four hours after induction. It's going to be, it's like super easy. And I was like, cool. Like my mom had her baby, me, I was her firstborn in eight hours, no medications, no drugs. And I thought, fine, this is going to be easy going, you know, just go in there, have my baby and I'll be out the next day. <laughs> and how far wrong was that story from the truth? We went through three days of an induction process where the gels were put onto my cervix. I was flat on my back. They had to do extended CTG monitoring. It was hard for them to get a trace being a bigger person, which meant I'm fully pregnant having to lay on my back, which is very uncomfortable. The gels did nothing because my cervix was high, hard and closed and right at back. And after day three of no progress and nothing happening, they said, we're going to try the balloon, which was a very painful procedure that nobody warned me about. And as I was going through it, I remember thinking, God, this is painful. Like I was, I was screaming, I was taking my breath away. And I thought, if I can't handle this, how am I going to handle labor? They were looking at me as if I was a hypochondriac. The doctor was looking at me like they put me on a, a high dose of gas that made me, I felt like I was I was completely off with the, I'd never had drugs before like that. I was just off with the fairies and everything was echoey around me. And I, it was just a surreal experience that nobody ever sat you down and explained, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be really painful because we're going to put a hand right the way up into your cervix and we're going to try to, fit this thing in even though it's like fully closed it was an interesting experience and that didn't work either so the next all night we went and it was uncomfortable because then you've got to have something in your hand and it's hard to you know it's just not it's not a it's not an easy way to give birth uh an induction process in my personal experience and so I wake up the next morning and they said oh it hasn't worked um yeah, well, they'll be in some talk to you about what's going to happen. And essentially they said to me, look, you know, we want you to come in tomorrow for monitoring and we'll start the process again on Monday. And I said, why are you going to start the process? Why don't I just come back when I'm in labour? And they said, well, no, we're going to do it Monday. And I said, look, otherwise you can come in for a C-section Monday. And I said, I'm not coming in for a C-section. You'll never get me coming in for a C-section and they said, okay, fine, we'll have a chat. I said, I'm way too scared to come in for a C-section. They came in and they had an obstetrician meeting that morning and they came back and said, look, we've bumped all the C-sections this morning and we're going to put you first. And this is what we recommend. And this is a three-page disclosure form. And what do you think? And I was like, okay, if that's what you think, then I guess that's what I'll do. I didn't realise at the at the reason the reason why they recommend it, they probably assumed she's a bigger person. She's not going to be able to give birth anyways. She's unfavorable. She's right. She's not going to go into labor with this induction. And we're not willing to allow her to wait for the natural process to happen. I think it was more to do with the fact that they had me on insulin for the gestational diabetes and they were concerned about that. Uh, I, you know, it could have been any one one big box of goodies that they pulled out and they just decided my fate for me. And being the good submitter, I said, yes, okay, we'll, we'll do that. I was petrified and I went through that experience and I came out feeling like a failure and just, you know, uh, even my best friend said to me, you should have fought harder. And I just had so much shame. I just felt it was at a time before Facebook groups existed really and it was all pages and it was like mum wars and, oh, my goodness, C-sections like the, you know, easy way out and, and it was just a horrific experience to motherhood. I felt like I let my child down. I was just, I just felt like a huge failure through that process. Yeah, and that's so common. I mean, I definitely went through that 
with my C-sections. Like I felt like, well, my body's broken. It didn't do what it was made to do. So um, that obviously just transforms your whole mindset and like your entrance into motherhood, feeling like, you know, you can't sometimes be the best mom. I don't want to speak for you, but how did you feel after that going into motherhood? Yeah, I felt like we then had challenges with breastfeeding, not because of me, but because of some of the uh, support that I'd received from midwives in the hospital and some of the recommendations and that. And that just was a knock-on effect because my mother had given birth to me vaginally and had no troubles breastfeeding. And I just felt like this huge failure. You know, people said to me before, breastfeeding, you know, if you can. And so I kind of changed my language. I was like, proudly telling everyone I'm going to breastfeed I'm going to breastfeed and then people would say oh if you can so many women have problems I had milk supply I thought that's not going to happen to me I'm not going to have a c-section that's not my women that's not my people you know Mm -hmm. that's other people and I thought c-sections were really just something that celebrities booked in I really did not think I didn't have any friends who had had C-sections. All my friends were young mums. And I think it was about 10 years before I'd had my child and they'd all just had vaginal births. It wasn't a thing. I didn't know a single person. So it was really shocking to me to end up in that situation. And I definitely did. I started a a blog actually called The Best Mum I Can Be. (laughs) So absolutely, I was on a mission to be the best mum I can be and Mm. I still am on that mission. And my blog was to share with women all the things that I'd learned, all the mistakes, all the things I wish other women had told me. So all of the trauma and all of the things, breastfeeding challenges, all of that stuff. I I went into hyperdrive. I went and did a breastfeeding course. I was doing all the birth stuff. I was reading as much as I could about VBAC and I was – I planned 24 months between birth and birth uh, so that I could, that's that's the biggest challenge I saw was mm-hmm. the 24 month thing. I didn't understand the hospital politics. I did not understand the insurance issues. I did not understand the, the bias towards bigger people. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand any of that. And I just thought, I'm going to be educated. I'm going to go in there and tell them everything I've learned. They're going to see me as a reasonable expect, like a reasonable woman who's educated and understands because all they need to know is informed consent because there's this thing called informed consent. So that's what I did. I spent the whole pregnancy trying to get them on my side. I tried to advocate for myself and I did. I did a beautiful job. The only issue is I spent my whole pregnancy being anxious, having to deal with all of the fear-mongering things they said to me about dead baby, you can't do it, you're bigger, blah, 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 blah. We want to repeat cesarean or an induction and all of the things and I spent so much energy trying to convince them to be on my side I didn't learn anything about birth it was all about how can I avoid a c-section you know I thought if I just go into labor my body will do it and it'll be fine I won't have an epidural but if I need to maybe I will but it'll be fine for me so I'm almost like a little bit unaware of and naive at the same time of how disruptive going into the hospital system, not having a great support team, not understanding how birth works and not understanding the politics that happen inside of the hospital system and not having that continuity of care. If I'd had like a midwife who I saw through my pregnancy, who I went into hospital with, I hands down think I would have had a a far different experience. But I I advocated for myself and I was so proud. I'm proud of myself because that took a lot of guts. I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend women do that, and I see that's what a lot of women do. They ask questions in Facebook groups about how they can educate their obstetrician, and that's exactly what I did. But you can't change somebody's mind. It's really hard to get somebody to change their mind on something when they're so passionate about something else. And I learned that the hard way, and it it was a cost. That came at a cost to me, and the cost to me was – I did get to go into spontaneous labour, but they were pushing me so much through that labour to have a C-section because they had already decided that I was going to have a C-section. They just kept coming in all the time and saying, you've got an OP baby, your waters are broken, there's a cervical lip, there's this, there's that. 
And I would say, well, why can't I just wait? And they said, well, if you wait, the risks in surgery are going to be much higher than if you just do it now. And I said, well, why can't I have a vaginal birth? They're like, well, you know, they didn't believe that I could do it. And so having a team around you who doesn't believe in you and are pushing you down a certain path is essentially where that path led me. I ended up having an epidural. Uh, my waters were uh, broken before then. I thought they were ruptured, but they weren't. The midwife said, oh, they're ruptured. And, you know, do you want me to do the little bag? I said, yeah, it's fine. And then all of the waters came out and then there was so much pain and I was out of my birth bubble. So I got the epidural straight away. And then all of the cervical lip, baby's position, la, 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 all the issues. But then I'm trapped because you've got the epidural. You can't get up and move around and go in your safe space. So eventually after about six hours of that kind of every hour having biggies and things, I eventually consented to have the the cesarean section, which was actually really traumatic. I ended up losing over three litres of blood. They tore my cervix, my my uterus down to the cervix. Apparently when they pulled her out, my baby's arm came and flung out a reflex. And it's one of the risks that can happen in a C-section after you've been labouring. And it's the risk that they were telling me about. So they knew. And so I was enraged after that experience. They said to me, promise us you'll never you can never labor on there again but you can have two more children and I started on a mission like well how did this happen and the first thing the midwife said to me in the postpartum was when the waters are broken it's harder for a baby to move down and I thought that midwife stitched me over she's she was uh and I started to research and learn and I understood all the mistakes that I'd made and all the things that didn't serve me and I spent four years learning as much as I could about birth, essentially. Well, three years learning about birth as much as I could, working through trauma. I was doing my uh, blog, sharing. I trained as a postpartum doula. I started working with women in the postpartum space because I knew I wasn't I wasn't in a space to be able to work with women in birth and I didn't want to take my trauma in. But interestingly enough, the women who I was working with um, – they were VBAC women or they were women who had accidental free births or planned free births. And so it was really interesting that the the vibe that was kind of coming out, the women came to me and uh, it was just an interesting story. I, um, I started connecting with a lot of doulas and birth workers and understanding that my option to have a home birth with a midwife, there was no option for me. The midwives were not willing to support me at home because they're under a lot of pressure themselves. If they support a single VBAC mum, they and they have to get transferred, they report them and all, even though they're not doing anything wrong, it's just, you know, the hospital, people working in the hospital freak out when they hear about a VBAC home birth, let alone a VBAC after two cesarean with a special scar plus size, you know, you're kind of building up a big case against you. So I then had to decide to have a free birth and, and that's what I did. I, after three years of researching and learning as much as I possibly could, getting over the radical responsibility of choosing that option because that was the biggest thing I was worried about is if something had happened, I mean, who would come after me? You know, I wouldn't get these things happen as you would in hospital. These things happen. And it was just unfortunate. I would have got the media at my door potentially I'm not saying but this is what I fabricated in my mind I'm having to work through these challenges and and you're working through like the world's against you why is everything against you why is everything hard the midwives won't support you I was going through a lot of um a lot of it all and it was a very challenging process to go through and then come out well yeah and I think that is a really important thing that you touched on is having that radical responsibility because I think we're so conditioned to not only listen to these authority figures, but they're the ones that are making these decisions for us. And then when it's like a decision that comes with a what we would call a bad outcome, then we have them to blame for that. But when it all comes on you, it feels different. So, you know, going through that process of taking that responsibility onto yourself and your partner and making sure you're having those open conversations with each other about 
what if the worst outcome happens? What would we do? Because I think so much of the time, of course, we want this amazing, beautiful birth story that we can tell to everybody. But that's just not always how it unfolds. So making sure that you're okay with both scenarios actually happening is incredible. So how did you prepare yourself? I mean, you did a lot of mental work, but did you do anything else to prepare for this free birth? It was a lot of mental work for me. I, The radical responsibility was the hardest thing. And, and when I could really get my head around the fact that I was blaming myself for what had happened in that hospital birth anyways. I was blaming them and it's easy to be angry with other people, but the trauma that I was experiencing and the pain that I was experiencing was blaming myself for allowing this to happen, even though I didn't know any better at the time. And so I kind of just said to myself, and I had conversations with my husband, like, you know, one of my biggest things was like, I didn't want, if anything catastrophic was to happen, I didn't want him to, blame me I wanted it to be a joint decision I wanted this to be both of us taking the responsibility but I also wanted to give myself love and kindness going through that process so if something had happened that I didn't understand at the time because you can't prepare for everything you, you don't know how you're going to that I would be strong enough and brave enough to work through whatever life threw at me but also I'd be kind and compassionate to myself because I'm not going to torture myself again. I'd already tortured myself enough the second time and it wasn't helpful for my kids. It wasn't helpful for me. So I was really loving myself through that journey because if you don't love yourself, you don't care for yourself, who is? The doctors aren't going to. They were causing me a lot of fear and anxiety, but I had to come home and look after myself or my friend circle. You have to look after yourself through the journey. And so when you're paving a life for yourself and you're making choices for yourself, especially choices that are different to society, you have to be really strong in who you are, why you're making that choice. And so for me, I, I was going back and forth of like, is this trauma? Is this fear? Am I making this choice because of those, because of those experiences? Of course I am, but why am I really making this choice? And I just thinking about birthing in hospital to me, it's like, what am I getting from it? Like if they said to me, your babies, there's a catastrophic thing happening. I wouldn't even trust them. Like that's how bad the connection had gone. Like how could I really trust them? Because I had a a belief that, and I still do in a way, which is why I'd go continuity of care. So you've got that relationship with somebody that you trust and you know how they practice, but how can I trust them? Because their eyes are like so wide open, like they are fearful. They're very fearful. And so I couldn't go in a birthing pool in the hospital because of my size. I would be hounded. I would have to drive to the hospital. My husband, you know, sitting in there for half an hour, that's uncomfortable. And so I really made the choice out of this is the best and safest thing for me and my baby because the first two times, I ended up in a major surgery. The second time I almost died. It was, I was on the table for over four hours. I had to have blood, you know, blood transfusions. It was, it was, and I was very angry that they'd put me and my life at risk just because I, because they'd made that decision for me. I think who, if anyone else had made a decision to put someone else's life at risk, there would be like court cases, but for women to go into major surgery or for poor things to happen to women, babies and birth, it's just like not a thing. Nobody even flaps their wing about it. It's just like, Oh, it was best for the baby. And uh, you know, the baby's healthy. And so that was the conversation that I had because I did do birth debriefs with a private midwife. I did one with the obstetrician. I left, that one from the hospital feeling what did what just happened because she was telling me like random you've got a 15 percent rupture rate and I said to her have you got evidence and she said no and I was like what are you even talking about like how can you make this stuff up and she was saying to me like if I wanted to have a VBAC after that experience if I found any obstetrician who was supporting me they were like some radical rebel like person. I was like, I was like, so basically you're saying to me that you 
are the top of the food chain and you are the top obstetrician in the world that knows what the right thing to do is. And if any other obstetrician in this world was willing to support me, that they're wrong and you're right. Like that is so egocentric. Like it's so, it was, it was so eye-opening because she was a really supportive um, obstetrician. And what I hadn't wrapped my head around and she had told me in that was that that obstetrician on the day had basically judged me as a bigger person. And so a lot of what I was experiencing was fat discrimination. And I should, I didn't actually say this, but I actually got kicked out of hospital at 37 weeks from one of the hospitals. Um, They're not allowed to do that. But uh, at 37 weeks, I got a phone call from them saying, I, we no longer accept your risk. And so you have to go to one of the bigger hospitals and, it was, and so I had to choose another hospital. So at 37 weeks, I had to find a new hospital. And so when I did end up going to that hospital, it was better. Like they were more supportive. They wanted to still do the same things, but I was just out of sorts. Like I just couldn't find my feet. I just felt I was just in, on a rocky edge, you know, and that's why I have such trust issues with people who behave in that way. I mean, it's not... <sighs> they're not reasonable. It's not reasonable to do that to somebody. None of my risks had changed um, throughout since they took my care on. So it was like fitting that they couldn't fear monger me or push me. And they said, mm, we'll just get rid of her. So we don't have to deal with it, you know? Um, so I'd been through the ringer through that experience. So by the time I had my free birth, the preparation for me was understanding physiological and instinctive birth and I'd started my podcast at that time so I could interview guests who were experts, all the leaders. Uh, I got Dr. Sarah Buckley and Dr. Rachel Reed, and I was picking their brains and asking all the questions that I wanted on my podcast. And I couldn't find a specific podcast for me. So I created the VBAC Home Stories podcast where I could interview women who I thought were amazing who were having free births after cesarean and home births after cesarean. There were some amazing podcasts out there, VBAC podcasts at the time, but the home birth stories were far and few. And so I said, I'm going to selfishly create this thing so I can draw inspiration. I was connecting with women in my local area who were a few months ahead of me during the journey and just connecting to the energy and waiting at, anxiously to hear their news and every time they had their home birth I was like oh you know it was that extra evidence that they can do it I can do it and so for me it really was mindset I didn't do anything physically through pregnancies I get very tired um, exhausted I get HD and I don't conform to the spinning babies and positioning idea that everyone likes to talk about I think that's great for hospital birth but I think when it comes to a home birth or a free birth, you're not on a timer. You can go, you can labor for days. There's no stress. So we don't need to get baby into a perfect position. There is no wrong position. There, the baby will come out the way it needs to come out. And for the majority of women, that will be true. Of course, there are some babies that get themselves into precarious situations. And having someone skilled, of course, is helpful. But I trusted and believed that. My mother had never had breech babies. I'd never had breech babies. I'd never, not that I, and I was happy to deliver one at home, birth one at home. I just didn't want to know about it. Same as I was happy to birth twins, but I didn't want to know about it. You know, it was that extra courage step to be able to do it. But in saying that, I do have a friend who had an accidental free birth with a breech baby. And it was a very simple thing. And I've got girlfriends who have had breech in hospital. And I think, my mindset completely changed from what was safe and what was acceptable to what I was comfortable with. And it was, when would I be safe? When would I feel comfortable birthing at home at how many weeks and how many weeks would I be happy to wait before I, you know, want to look at intervention? It's not that I don't believe in intervention or I don't believe in medical support or I don't believe in any of that sort of thing. It's just, I believe in utilizing those when it feels aligned and when it's needed and I feel that I should be the one that um, gets to dictate that rather than somebody else and so that's pretty much how I kind of went into the free birth um, I was excited it was a celebrated 
experience for me. I had a, a mother blessing, a blessing way. I had my friends come over and talk about how they met me and we like one of my friends massaged my feet and um, massaged me and we had a beautiful lunch and it was just such a womanly experience. It was very different to my first two. The first two I had a baby shower and a gender reveal and this one was about celebrating me as a woman and that new passage and my friends trusting and believing in me and it was a beautiful experience and I was just so excited to give birth to this baby um vaginally I I always believed I could do it I just sometimes there'd be a niggle of you know and there were fears there were lots of fears like what if my baby dies or what if I I was convinced that me or my baby was going to die and I think it was connected back to my my mum lost my third um, her third baby and I was having my third baby and she'd had two daughters I had two daughters and I was like, this is going to be the curse, right? It's going to be the free birth and I'm, I'm going to get hounded. And But the thing about me, which I really love that I've, you know, a lot of people don't like about me is I'm quite stubborn and I'm quite determined, <laughs> setting my way sometimes. And so, I mean, I was talking to my husband about it last night. You have to be really determined if you, especially if you're going to go through the hospital system or if you're going to choose a free birth, you have to be really strong in your conviction and and because otherwise you can be easily swayed either way. And that's why so many women get to like 38 weeks and they get induced and they even maybe convince themselves that, yeah, actually I'm okay with that, but they're not. They're just, they don't have it in them because they're not really, they don't have that conviction and that, that spirit. And I think a lot of it was beaten out of us at school and how we were raised and through the system. And so I've always had that feisty nature about myself and I always thought it was the right thing and I always thought people should be reasonable. So by me being reasonable, I thought they should be reasonable. But unfortunately, society doesn't work like that. It's they we it's a false illusion, I think, that kind of happens in societies. They tell you what the rules are and if you play in the rules, you think you're going to get the outcome. But unfortunately, the rules don't apply to the rule makers a lot of the time. And so it's okay for them to kind of overshadow the rules and, you know, it's it's an interesting, um, I'm just kind of like verbally expressing how I'm feeling about that whole situation, but it's it's an interesting ride and it's an interesting thing that we find ourselves in. Yeah, it really is. And it's so true. Like over the years, we have been ingrained to be a certain way and then, you know, we just keep on that cycle as we're pregnant and we're expecting an amazing outcome because we've been such good listeners this whole time. And it's just yeah. not like that. Um, so I think it's great to just like follow your instinct or your intuition, that gut feeling, whatever that is that that's telling you. So following your intuition is a hard thing to do if you're not a person that has followed their intuition. And most of us are thinkers because we get that kicked out of us too. So I think we're all born intuitive, but what happens is we often get told, unless you can prove that, then you're you're delusional or you're judgmental or you're yeah. this or you're that. Quite often I'm very good when it comes to people, like reading people's energy. And as I was growing up, I was told I'm judgmental and I couldn't prove things about people, but things eventually happen. Like there was this guy that my dad worked with and he just gave me the creeps and he ended up being a pedophile and ending up in jail. But I had no proof about that. He never did anything to me. I just had this feeling. And there were other people along the way that you can't prove. So you start not believing yourself because nobody believes you. And so I had to really find how to listen to my intuition. And that's been a journey that I've been on for the last few years, actually. I hadn't got all the way there before I had my intuitive free birth, but I believed in physiological birth. It wasn't about woo-woo or intuition. For me, it was I, I interviewed Rachel Reed, Dr. Rachel Reed, and she talks about physiological and instinctive birth, how mammals give birth, how our bodies are designed. And so for me, it's not about I have to be in this birth position, I have to know this. For me, it was like Basically, as you conceive a baby and your baby grows, you don't know how any of that works. None of us do. Unless you're somebody who's researched that and you're interested in that, 
we don't know, but it actually happens. Just as our heart beats and our we go to the toilet every morning or whatever it is, those processes happen. And so when I could logically understand, because I'm a logical processor, I was like, okay, so if I just allow the process to happen and I'm not being disturbed, I'm in an undisturbed environment, it'll just happen. And I don't have to understand how it's happening. It just, I don't have to think, oh, what was that birth position I should get myself into? I just follow my intuition just as you would if you have a sore leg and you get yourself into a, you know, the right position. You might go ask a doctor for some tips, but, you know, you probably have a good understanding of what feels good for you. And so I started to take on, I'm the authority in my birth and I did hire a doula and it was a free birth doula, somebody who had free birth herself. And I was very limited in who I could choose as well. It was um, COVID times as well, 2020. And there was only a few, this is before, this is like pre-COVID. There's a lot of free births happening now, but pre before COVID, I was like really a fish out of the water. Now it's like everyone's free birthing. <laughs> it's a completely changed environment now. Um, so that made it extra hard for me in my mind as a people pleaser and wanting to conform to society. I was very weird. I'm doing this crazy thing. Now all the doulas are supporting free birth. Before it was only like a couple radical doulas and it was all hush-hush and all this sort of stuff. So it's amazing how quickly the world can change in just a few, four years or something like that. But um, it was a very simple process. I mean, I just went into spontaneous labour. My waters broke at four o'clock in the morning, which had never happened. It was a very exciting time for me. I had the adrenaline spike. My husband, I woke my husband up and he was cleaning up the waters behind me. And I was cool. I said, call my doula. And she said, just go back to bed and, you know, relax and let me know when contractions start. And I was like, I can't go to sleep. I'm too excited. And I, I put myself on a timer. I'm like, at this point in time, I put myself on a timer for like I have to go into labour within 24 hours and all this sort of – I have a very different view set now. I interviewed a woman on my podcast who had ruptured waters for 18 days and that definitely gave me some insight into what you can do. It's just that women don't do anything like that because you have to fight heaven and, you know, it's not that you can't do it or it's not safe. It's just – Everyone is induced after, you know, 24, 20, 48 hours. Um, so I went into labour straight away anyways, half an hour labor, half an hour later, and it was hard and fast. There was no warm-up or anything. It was just, bam, you know, really hard contractions, really painful contractions. And I thought the second labour that I experienced with my second baby that was quite nice and gentle and it was, you know, for a few hours it was breathing through and I'm riding the waves and I'm like I was on the toilet and in the shower and I thought I'll just do that again this time. Went on the toilet, that was uncomfortable. Went on the, you know, sitting on the birth ball, that was uncomfortable. I'm in my bed, I'm like I've got the birth comb and I've got my leg up and I'm like, ooh, you know, deep breathing and moaning and just, oh, my goodness, how am I going to get through this? Like, the thing when you've had C-sections is you understand what, what's to be expected and you understand the recovery. But when you're planning a VBAC, you don't know if you're going to get torn to heaven, come. You don't know if it's going to be a super painful experience or if it's just easier to have a C-section. I was kind of in that, you know, you, you kind of go in that mind, what if I'm making the wrong decision? A split second, it, it comes in and you go, nah, it's all right. I want to have a vaginal birth. But in that moment, I was kind of thinking, what kind of maniac has a home birth without drugs and, you know, doesn't have an epidural? This is really painful. Who in their right mind does this? This is kind of what I'm thinking. And I had this um, I had this other doula because she had an assistant with her as well who I had um, brought to the birth who was a photographer as well. And I was looking at her because she wanted to have a, she had had a couple of C-sections. I'm looking at her thinking, don't ever do this. This is really painful. I never vocally said it, but just in my mind, I'm going through this. Um, the only way I can experience it, if you've seen Twilight, is Bella when she gets turned. And she's like on the outside, she's asleep. <laughs> and on the inside, she's like screaming. And that's the experience I was having. It was like, I was really calm on the outside and on the inside I was like being tortured. But it only lasted for about four hours and 
my children had to, um, they were so excited. I could feel the energy. They're on the video like, mum's having her baby. They've got the music, the relaxing music, and they're touching me. And I'm just like, I didn't want anyone around me. I didn't want anyone talking to me. I didn't want anyone touching me. So I, I had three people backed up to take my children. The first two were sick. So my sister came at six o'clock in the morning and took them and they had the little backpacks on and it was, they were so cute and off they trotted. I was laboring in the birth pool at the time. And I remember waving to my sister, you know, like off you go, you know, get them out, off you go. And as soon as they left, I think it was about an hour and my doula came and I just started to, you know, calm my energy down and really just relax. My music was on and I was in the birth pool looking at my affirmations and then I'd say that my I was fully dilated at this point or I was at least nine and ten or might have had a cervical lip I never had a VE so I'll never know but I dilate very quickly so with my second baby I was fully dilated at five centimeters at five hours sorry but it was the 10 centimeters one side nine centimeters with a cervical lip so um quick dilators, which is why my mum had me in eight hours and she had my sister in two. And then it was all about uh, had pushing start every three or four contractions. And so really what was happening, it was because I had a posterior baby who was high up, who need, who my waters had broken, so it's harder for a baby to come down when the waters are broken. My body then had the big job of pushing my baby down because I had a philosophy and belief in the body will do what it needs to do to birth that baby, right? So when my doula said, sit on this birthing ball before, you know, at 30 weeks onwards and I was tired, I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm tired. I'm, I was reclining on the chairs. I knew I was having another posterior baby, but I was like, I'll suffer the labor and just, and just um, be able to survive, you know, the pregnancy part. And I knew that I was happy to have a longer labor and maybe a harder labor, um, it wasn't a hard labor after that four hours though. I, I was peaceful. I was calm. The pushing was very, it felt really good for me. I felt really powerful. So every like three or four contraction, I'd get up on my knees and hang over the birth pool and be pushing. It was uncontrollable. I had, um, no control or anything like that. And, um, I was just kind of like laughing in between contractions and making jokes <clears throat> my leg went numb and I was like, oh, my leg's numb. Oh, let's chop it off. It's so annoying. And I was more worried about that than the actual contractions and just saying like, when's the baby going to come and what's happening? And, you know, just, it was really chill. I just remember <clears throat> being really chill. And I guess another 10 hours went by and then eventually I kind of felt something inside and, I had this big push before I felt something actually change. It was a big push. And every time that I did push, I felt like I had to, you know, a little bit of poo would come out. And so I felt like I'm doing this big poo, like the size of a head. And, you know, it was felt really powerful. And, and then I felt something different inside. And I thought, said to my husband, can you just feel inside? And he said, yeah, okay. And he felt, and he said, oh, it looks like, it feels like a kiwi fruit. Do you know what kiwi fruits are? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So kiwi fruit's nice and soft and it's got a little bit of fuzzy stuff. And and then he goes to me, well, it could be a muscle though. And I was like, oh no, because I've been pushing for a long time. What if I've prolapsed? And so I straight away was just like, I must have prolapsed. Oh, well, I guess we'll just see what happens. Right. And it wasn't very long before, you know, we could, I could actually feel that the baby was there and and of course, it's funny now to think back that he was like saying it was a kiwi fruit, like, and he didn't have the experience or we didn't have the knowledge. So it was just, I laugh about it now because it's quite funny. But, um, and then I knew that the baby's head was coming in and out, you know, stretching and everything. And I said to myself, this is normal. Just got to be patient. Let's just allow this process to unfold. And the doulas had gone outside and allowed my husband and I to be a bit private um, before then. And we were a bit, um, you know, a bit intimate and stuff. And I think that all helped her to come a little bit quicker and, you know, just releasing that oxytocin, mm -hmm. just helping that. Cause I watched a lot of orgasmic birth as well. So um, there was a lot of focus on 
me weighing and I hadn't weighed the whole time. And so I thought, oh, I, I was convinced like, oh, maybe the bladder's full and the baby won't be able to come down. And so we'll, you know, trying some simulation to try to help me weigh and stuff like that. And it turns out that I was actually dehydrated because the pool was really hot. I was getting water, but I wasn't getting enough water because my body was working so hard, even though it didn't feel hard to me. And my contractions were actually sporadic. So they weren't, you know, two minutes apart. They were sometimes 15 minutes apart. I didn't know at the time because I'm off doing whatever's happening. But um, the doula said later, you know, it you had big breaks. And so that was allowing my body to get the strength it needed to be able to push my baby down and, and move my baby. Cause it was doing a lot of hard work in a hospital environment. <clears throat> people aren't trained for that kind of birth. And so that's why I think they say, you know, posterior births, you've got a higher risk of cesarean. It's not actually, I don't believe it's because, you know, the woman's not going to be out of birth and it's just because, you know, the woman's pushing and they only know that pushing is when the baby's about to come out. If you're fully dilated or if you're almost dilated, they're expecting an hour later the baby has to be born. Imagine if you're fully dilated and then you're still not giving birth 10 minutes, 10, 10 hours later, but you're pushing. That is not textbook. It's not how they're trained. And so, it's interesting that they don't know that because so many women have posterior births. And when I talk to women and I interview them, they don't understand that the what had happened through their birth, even when they have a home birth, that a lot of the time that's just a normal posterior pattern. So I'm really passionate about sharing that because I think as in the birth world, we just don't share that enough. And I think we're, we're letting women down by not, sharing the different types and different variations of birth because we always talk about oh you get you know it's all you get dilated and then the baby comes out and the fer happens it's all this but there's there's a percentage of us who are having posterior births and that's not how birth is kind of happening for us and so we kind of get in the weirdo you know this weirdo thing that nobody talks about and nobody really knows so i love sharing that and i didn't know that before I had my birth. It was only after my birth because I always go on my investigations. It was after my birth that I was like, well, what was that all about? You know, why did this happen? And why did that? And I started researching again. And then through I found that, you know, only a few people were talking about this. And then I started asking midwives in my group. I was like, do you know about this? Do you we and they said to me, we weren't trained and we don't know about this. And and I thought, Okay, so I've I've kind of come on to a gold nugget here. And um, so I do love talking about that because <clears throat> I think it's important aspect of, and by me having the belief of physiological birth and instinctive birth, there was no, the rigidness of this is what happens. And I wasn't in my mindset on my head and this is what's happening. And I should have had a baby by now. I was just going with the flow and what will be will be this is how it has to be because that's what I believe but most of us don't believe that way most of us are convinced in the textbook birth way and I can see how that could have led to me potentially transferring into hospital I could have freaked myself out if I thought oh I've been pushing for so long and we hear those stories of women pushing for three or four hours in hospital because they're told to push before they're ready and they could probably be pushing for a lot longer. It's just, um, you know, being told to push and coach pushing and all of those interesting things. But my baby's head came out. Um, I'll get back to the birth story. I, I kind of went off in a tangent. My baby's head came out and I was so, it was very, I knew it was going to be painful because I'd been warned. It was like paper ripping is kind of how I, it wasn't like a ring of fire for me, but I can see how that, was like paper ripping and I thought oh I'm getting a tear here you know this is oh well it'll be what it will be you know and her head came out and I was just wow the head's out you know and the the thing that happens here is I had a pretty undisturbed birth the whole time my hormones were going well but what happened was my birth doula intervened at this point and said to my husband move away and don't touch the baby's head don't touch the baby's head and straight away I thought I could feel her urgency as an empath. I could feel her energy and my adrenaline spiked. And I thought, why is she saying that? Because birth, breech babies, you're not supposed to touch. I've never seen a video or heard about where you shouldn't be touching a baby's head. 
underwater because usually the mum touches the baby's head and it's all lovely and straight away my contraction stopped and so her shoulders were out her head was out but my contraction stopped and I'm in a really heightened state at this point because I'm thinking is there something wrong what's happening and I also hired her not for the birth but I'd hired her for the placenta and the blood afterwards because I wasn't sure about that it became clear to me as I interviewed women on my podcast that a lot of them transferred after birth because of the blood loss. Um, being in water, it makes the blood look a lot more. And so we have no experience unless you've got an experienced person around you that can say, oh, this is normal. A lot of us, I found a lot of the women were unsure. So they would transfer into hospital just to make sure, just in case. And um, so I knew that I could birth my baby. I knew that all that was fine because I'd got two 10 centimetres of my second. I thought, yeah, I've got this in the bag. It's all good. But it was the after that I was worried about. And it's ironic that, unfortunately, the person I'd hired had actually caused some issues there. So I had this baby that was stuck at the stomach, essentially, with no contractions. And my jeweler's saying to me, push, push, push. And I'm like, I'm asking my husband to pull the baby out. And he's like, oh, I don't want to hurt the baby. And then I said to my jeweler, like, can you pull the baby? She's like, oh, I don't do anything like that. I was like, oh, that's really helpful. Um, and so I'm kind of just like laying here with this baby and I'm purple pushing. And then eventually my husband says it was only within a minute or two, but when you're the person, it feels really, it feels like a really long time, but it was only like a minute or two. It really wasn't a thing. It's just, it felt so emergent with people screaming at me, push. I thought, I don't want. I didn't want coach pushing. I didn't want any of this sort of stuff. And this is what happened. But she came out and my husband picked her up and she got put on me and it was just such a wonderful feeling. Then my jeweler came around and said, look, I'm a bit worried about her labored breathing. I would recommend calling an ambulance. And I'd, I'd given out my authority for that. If I could go back, I probably would, um, I would have checked in with myself a bit more, but I'd, given that authority to her and the baby doctor came out the ambulance the baby ambulance came out straight away and she said like cut the cord and as soon as the cord was cut and we held her up she started screaming and um he he said she was fine but then the issue became about me because my birth's disturbed I've got no um, oxytocin my baby's away from me my baby's removed I've got this random really lovely ambulance guy in my room but now it's about let's get the placenta out. There's a lot of blood coming out. So there was a bit of um, concern. But essentially I had a retained placenta. Um, I ended up shooting my jeweler, reckon, you know, told the ambulance to give me a shot of Pitocin, which there was no real fundal massage or anything like that done. And, you know, you're supposed to get the placenta out within a time frame after that. So, again, I had to go back and look at all the things that were probably done wrong at that to not really help that situation. Um, and there has been a little bit of mourning as well because you have this idea of you have this baby at home and then you get in your bed. And to be honest, I wasn't really fixated on um, I have to have this perfect birth. My ultimate goal was a vaginal birth. And if I could do it again, I would always choose to have that experience. I mean, I, I would if I was going to have another baby, it would be a home birth. It would be a free birth probably a free birth, but I definitely have a home birth because I could just imagine what would have happened to me in a hospital environment. But I did go back to that hospital that I got kicked out of because it's my local one. And they were really good. Actually, I had a lot of trauma from there and I feel like it was really healed because they were like really sh surprised and shocked that I'd had a free birth. So one of the biggest issues having a free birth is if you do transfer, you worry about how you're going to be treated you know, whether you're going to be abused or patronised or whatever. So they were really good in the sense that finally they allowed me to dictate what was going to happen and there was informed consent. And I got to say, you know, she tried to manually remove the retained placenta out and I said to her after three attempts, which is actually very painful, by the way, with no medication, I said to her, I do not consent. I no longer consent. I want to be put under and... Uh, because I'd been awake for the last surgery, which was very trauma traumatizing for me, I just wanted to be put under. I didn't want to have to live through another experience like that. And they 
listened to me. They said yes. I signed the waiver form. I did lose a significant amount of blood. Um, so I had a three-liter postpartum hemorrhage, and that would have been because uh, I ended up having the shot and the placenta was still stuck in there a few hours later. I ended up having about six hospital people and my my ambulance people in my house at the time. Because of protocol, they had to get four ambulances to eventually transfer me. So they needed to have um, a blood bag before they could transfer me to hospital. Um, so they ended up being here for a couple of hours before I could get to hospital, which is actually only seven minutes up the road. So that was an interesting experience, yeah. So all these little things that you just don't know or you're not prepared for, my baby did go to special care this time. Um, they did put her on CPAP for 12 hours. So she probably did need a bit of um, maybe. When I spoke to the pediatrician afterwards, they said, like, it was just a precaution. She did need a little bit, but maybe she wouldn't have needed it. The thing about transfer hospital uh, home births is that they do treat you a certain way, and that's they do want to take the baby they do want to do antibiotics just in case. So my husband actually consented to a lot of those things. So on that note, it was a very new experience. And I'm very um, upfront and honest with people about how they can advocate and, you know, getting your transfer plan prepared as well. Because uh, I, th I think it's about 20-something percent of women will transfer either before, during or after birth. So and I think it's a little bit higher for VBAC women as well, for whatever reason, because of fear from the care provider or for the woman or whatever it is. Um, so that was a new journey. And I just um, I just had to kind of go through that. There was a, a bit of trauma from my baby being separated from me in special care. I did blame myself a little bit because for the first three or four days, I didn't know what was happening. And it was really hard to get to my baby and for her to come to me and what she went in with, she ended up staying there for jaundice. And it, so it ended up being like a seven day thing, which I consented to. She was borderline and all the things that you wish you kind of knew, but um, it did give me a really good insight into what mums with special care babies go into. My baby was a, the healthiest baby there. And um, when I did get to debrief with them, they said, look, everything we did was pretty much precaution because you didn't get prenatal care. And pretty much they mean by that, I did get prenatal care. They mean that I didn't go through their system. And so there's a lot of fear when it comes to those sorts of births. But I had the most peaceful, positive experience with my home birth. I it was just so calm and so lovely and I could be in the birth pool the whole time. Like it was a life-changing experience for me, the whole journey. And so sometimes I wish that I never had to go on that journey to begin with for the past, Ashley. Like nobody should have to suffer that much. And I see it with women. No one should have to suffer that much and go through the hardships of how could that have been different for me with my children? What kind of mother could I have been? And I look at it as, for me, I had to go through that to become who I am today. And I'm so grateful for the journey and where I am now. I can share my story and help other women. Um, it's been life-changing for me. But, of course, I want to see a different world where women are respected, women are involved in their own births, women get to have the say, women are treated with dignity and love and care. And that's where I would really love to see I'm not totally against hospital birth. I think it has its place, of course, but I think that it would be awesome to have more birthing centres or birthing suites for women. Like I think in America you have like birthing centres that are like owned by the midwife and it's like a beautiful room or something mm -hmm. like that. We don't tend to have that in Australia. They're usually attached to a hospital. Gotcha. They are more nicer, but I would love to have more like what you've got there where you are and it's like you just go to your midwife and you go see your midwife she comes to your house and you decide are we going to do it in the suite or are we just going to come to your house like that would be what I think would be the normal situation for women and a safer thing because hospitals are really for sick um, people with infections or diseases or very sick things that they're going to die from so I think that birth is a very separate thing and I think it should be less clinical and more woman-centred. Um, so it's been a wonderful journey that I'm on.
I love that so much. And thank you for sharing your story. That is incredible. I think it's so nice to see that, I mean, you did have the authority over your birth and it wasn't exactly how you might have envisioned, but you still came away with it feeling good. So I think that is incredible. And so I know we kind of already touched on it, but how or what kind of tips would you give to somebody that's planning to do either a home birth or a free birth after cesarean? Well, there's so many tips that I could give, but I think it's important <laughs> to have the right sort of support around you and understanding birth, a physiological and instinctive birth. I think mindset comes a lot into it as well. I think there's definitely... A lot of fears that you need to work through, especially if you've had a vaginal birth before, depending on how you were treated and your personality type. There are some women who are very strong in who they are and they just they don't need to look to outside of themselves. The more intuitive type of women, uh, they've got that in the bag. They usually have a very good support system around them. It's the women who, if you don't have a really good support system around you, you're not going to be able to tell your mom and it's a normalised thing. It's a very taboo thing to have a home birth. So what happens is then we cut off our current supply system, our support system, because we can't let our mother know because she's had a traumatic birth or it's not like every daughter out there is doing this sort of thing. So we don't tell our family and friends. We've lost our support system. So finding that community, whether that's local community, whether it's working with somebody like me or doing a program like my online home birth program, really understanding physiological and instinctive birth, I think is really important. And then finding the right support. So whether that's a doula or a midwife, but finding someone who suits your personality type. A lot of what we do when we're looking for a care provider, and I did this myself, is I was looking for somebody confident. You want somebody confident, right? But if you're a highly sensitive person like me, you want someone a bit more nurturing. And so you really need to think about your personality and how would you like to be cared for? How often would you like to see that person? And what are their values and ideas about birth? And how do they kind of treat women who have had births like you? If you're a bigger person, are they comfortable with a bigger body? How do they kind of talk about it? Using your intuition as well to kind of um, build that knowledge up, like, if you feel really comfortable and lovely with that person, then that's a really good sign. If if you kind of go away and you think, oh, she said that and she said that, mm, are you going to overthink that and say, convince yourself that you should accept it because that's what we sometimes do? And then you find yourself cl getting close to the birth and you're thinking, should I or shouldn't I invite this person to my birth? And you just want to get the right person, you know, set up the get-go. It makes it harder if you're having a VBAC because – especially if you're having multiple, if you've got two or three plus to find a supportive person. So you, I, I interviewed a woman who had seven C-sections on my podcast recently and she searched high and low for a support person to support her. She left no stone unturned. Do not be afraid to, don't just do like five and they say no and then that's it. Leave no stone unturned. She had a, a faith, so she believed that God would, take her to the the right person I think having faith I've had to learn to have faith in the universe and have faith in things and that's been really helpful that is amazing so did I'm just curious now did she find a provider <laughs> she did find a provider yes oh, amazing yes. wow she I would have, love yes. to hear that story <laughs> yes it's coming out soon so when it comes out I'll send it to you yes please yes. do so obviously you are, you know, like a home birth guide, um, mm. right? Is that like the proper term that you'd like to be called? Yeah. I, you know, I, I really don't find that I fit into any label because now I'm supporting women at birth. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm doing virtual birth, in-person birth. Then I do like the guiding stuff. And then I'm a birth educator because I've got my yeah. programs as well. And then I'm a podcaster like you. So it's like, we're putting on so many hats. Heck yes. That I <laughs> Yeah, so it's just I am, you know, all of those things and more. But yes, it's it's um it's a it's an all it's an all inclusive. But yes, I do tend to call myself a home birth guide sometimes. It just matters who I speak to. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. So if somebody were to want to like 
work with you or get some like coaching or something from you, what would be the best way for them to do that? So please come to my website. My website is, I'm sure you'll put it in the show notes anyways, but it's ashleywinning.com. In there, you've got all my services, my programs, and a lot of freebies too. I've got my podcast housed there too. I do have a VBAC home birth guide that's a freebie that you can download as well. Um, um, please don't feel, you know, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram as well, which is Ashley L Winning and slide into my DMs and say hello. I'm more than happy to chat to people and let, you know, see where you're at and see what I can help you with. Beautiful. I love that so much. Thank you for offering that up. I really appreciate it. And I feel like we can go for hours just talking yeah. about all the things. Um, but for now, we'll leave you with that. And maybe we'll get to have another chat soon. So thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the VBAC Junkie podcast. Make sure to leave a rating and subscribe to the show so that you don't miss an episode. And also, I have a free gift for you. If you would like to have a guide on how to prepare for a VBAC, head to my website at www.birthincometrue.com slash VBAC guide. And all of this will be in the show notes. So you can just click that link and head there and download this free guide. I hope you have an amazing week. Until next time. Bye.